today on Ag News Daily. Some recent research we did came back with 83% of consumers need to feel good about the meat brands that they are purchasing. And so how can we tell stories that showcase the good work that producers are doing and create a positive narrative around how that beef is raised? Well, welcome back to another episode of the Ag News Daily Podcast. Tanner Wood. Off here, joined virtually by Delaney Howell. When do we get to do this in person together next? Yes, we'll see each other very soon, Tanner, at the Farm Progress Show, as well as hopefully some of our listeners. That's right. We will both be there. So, listeners, if you uh, want to stay tuned to our social media to get updates on where you can find us, we'll make sure to let you know because we'd love to meet you and also learn why you enjoy listening to the Ag News Daily Podcast. Well, they enjoy listening to it, Tanner, because we're just so great at sharing the news. Oh, I thought you were going to give me a compliment, but you had to loop yourself in on that one as well. Of course. (laughs) Well, it's good because I think you're carrying the load today. Uh, It seemed to be a little slow out of the sources that I have. I want to hit here real quick on a couple of things from the China direction. We've been talking a lot about the original trip. Uh, that U.S. officials have been taking. Additional officials, as you reported, Delaney, uh, showed up there Monday and Tuesday. But Taiwan took to the air. Taiwanese F-16 fighters roared into the night sky on Wednesday in a show of force in front of the media, demonstrating that their military has the power to defend their democratically governed island in the face of these Chinese war games. So A pretty powerful outlay there for a country that has only practiced in private. So the uh, officials there were stating that this is a good way to get ground crews out to demonstrate how rapidly they can load weapons, manage their aircraft, and continue to practice reconnaissance missions. All things that they've been training for in private can now be displayed to the public. So a little bit of a flex there, Delaney. It certainly sounds like that, Tanner, and Ukraine is certainly trying to flex their muscle as much as possible to get grain out of the country. So far, we have reports that over the past 17 days, we've seen about 24 ships carrying food and other agricultural goods leaving Ukrainian ports. However, today, August 17th, Ukraine is expecting five large ships to arrive at the, I'm going to butcher the name, but the Chornomosk Black Sea port on Wednesday for loading more than 70,000 tons of agricultural products and goods, which is the largest convoy by far that we've seen since uh, the deal was brokered. On the flip side of that, Tanner, we have seen reports from the Agriculture Union Director that the area sown to winter wheat grains in Ukraine could fall by 30 to 60% in 2023 if we don't see Ukrainian state assistance and an increase in grain exports. It certainly seems like we've got the grain exports thing on the right track, but according to Roman Slastion, the agricultural union director, he said there are great hopes that the government will find an opportunity to finance the sowing campaign. If this is not done, there will be serious problems. So we are continuing to see them push towards the finish line of harvesting this year, but next year is still being called into question. I was, uh, I have some 
Ukrainian contacts case who we've interviewed on the podcast before was sharing just the other day in a group that I'm in uh, that he was finishing up with Harvest and he's been pretty much much heads down trying to get that done. But usually he's done around the 1st of August. So a little bit later in the season, but a lot of farmers were getting into the fields and getting harvested tanner there in Ukraine. So this year seems to be like they're hitting the finish line, but next year is still a big question mark. Yeah, and that's a big gap, 30 to 60%. Mm-hmm. And I've had a couple of conversations, ironically, in the last two days, discussing how we have reports of grain leaving Ukraine. But they noticed, the people I was having a conversation with, noticed that there are no reports of goods being returned through those ports. So right. all the ships that are entering those ports are empty. So still a little bit of a power play there. Ukraine may not be getting necessary supplies, which in turn could be access to fertilizers, seeds, and other ag products that these farmers would need. So a pretty astute observation there from a couple of conversations the last couple of days. Heading back over to China, Shanghai is reporting that China is scrambling to alleviate power shortages and bring more water to its drought-hit basin of the Yangtze River. So it's battling the record-breaking heat wave, as we've talked a lot about here in the United States, is also happening there in China. They're deploying relief funds, trying to seed clouds and develop new sources of water supply. So for more than two months, baking temperatures have disrupted crop growth, threatened livestock and forced industries in the hydropower dependent regions to shut down. So it goes as far, Delaney, here in these extreme heat areas of uh, pretty much portions of the southern China region to where China's southwestern province of Sichuan said that it's rationing power supplies to only homes, offices, and shopping malls uh, after ordering energy-intensive metals and fertilizer producers to curb operations. So uh, they've instructed people to set their air conditioners no lower than 79 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 26 degrees Celsius. They've also uh, shut off any public fountains, lights in the evening they're encouraging people to take the steps instead of elevators or lifts as they're referred to so delaney didn't realize power constraints in that southwestern region were that desperate but a lot of that is because of hydropower making up 80 percent of the power capacity in that area and without water flow obviously that doesn't allow you to generate much power Yeah, I saw that article as well, Tanner. Hard to believe it's that much of their power coming from hydropower in that southern region of China. But speculations are starting to rise that China may also be in a recession now that the U.S. is technically in a recession since we've seen two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth as we continue to watch China's economy. Obviously, they're having... um, shrinking GDP numbers compared to where analysts expected them to be. But the market was also caught off guard with the interest rate cut that we saw announced or that you shared on the podcast earlier this week, Tanner. But if the U.S. and China are both in a recession, it's going to be very difficult for the global economy not to enter a recession as well. And as we continue to discuss what the Fed here is doing to try and curb the recession or curb inflation, I should say, we're getting expectations of probably a 50-point basis rate hike here at the September meeting. 
Uh, I was reading some interesting commentary this morning, Tanner. Again, you probably are the better person to talk about this since you are a banker, but it was discussing essentially that at some point we have seen in the past uh, interest rates go above the rate of inflation and what that does to the economy. Right. Yeah, I think I've run up the term stagflation here a couple of times Mm -hmm. uh, as we've discussed this, and that's kind of the period before we get to where rates are higher than inflation. Uh, obviously, that is the goal is to to make that inflation rate stall out. Uh, but stagflation is not something that is beneficial to the economy as well. But uh, it will be interesting. I, I do think a lot of the articles that I've read are looking at that 50 point, not another 75 basis mm-hmm. points, uh, which is good news in some stance, but uh, it'll all depend upon the economic factors that they review during that meeting. So it's still up in the air. Got a couple of weeks here until that meeting kicks off. uh, So we will get to see there. I've got 20 refiners appealing RFS waiver denials. So refining companies are lining up to challenge the Biden administration on the denial of RFS exemptions. Through the ethanol industry, we have celebrated a lot of Biden's administrations of rejection for some pending small refinery exemptions to the renewable fuel standard. Legal challenges are coming up, though, and starting to pile up in federal appeals courts. So earlier this year, the Biden administration announced this rejection of all remaining SREs, so that's about 100 in all as part of the broader release of the RFS volumes for 2020 to 2022. Of course, that immediately triggered some appeals. As a result, 20 court appeals have been filed since August 1st. The United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia had 11 filed just recently on August 8th. So a long list of appellants We can take a look at those, but they are nationwide, Delaney. Even though earlier this year, Growth Energy sued the EPA in the same court for action taken on 31 small refinery exemptions granted in 2018. These are specific to 2020 through 2022. Uh, There are being discussions thrown around of ways that those can be rectified, even though they haven't been granted as exemptions to where uh, they could look at the purchase of renewable identification numbers or RINs. They could also look at alternative compliance and demonstration approaches. But all in all, it seems like our court system there is going to be tied up a little bit until they sort through how they are going to rule on the appeals. But so far, it seems like the Biden administration is standing firm on not granting those waivers. Well, Tanner, switching tracks here to talk weather. We can't get through an August edition without talking weather. But I'm going to talk about South American weather here for a moment, because in this morning's Nutrient Ag Solutions uh, morning newsletter put on by Eric Snodgrass, he discussed South American planting weather and their spring outlook. He said that analysts are suggesting South America is poised to have an extremely large crop if weather cooperates this season with an estimated 4 to 5% increase in total acreage planted, which would increase the size of their soybean crop by about 150 million bushels. Now, the thing that we're still watching here is the La Nina weather pattern and whether or not that gives them a dry start to the season or a wet start to the season. Typically, when Brazil is getting ready to plant, they are waiting for 
usually about two inches of rainfall before they get into the field. They can start planting as early as September 1st, or excuse me, September 15th, but they typically wait on at least two inches of rain before they get into the fields. Now, historically with the La Nina pattern, that increases the risk of drought in southern Brazil. And so Snodgrass is saying that we've got to take a close look here over the next 45-day outlook for South America to see, do they have a monsoon season to start the planting, which is kind of typical behavior, or do we see La Nina pattern strengthen and see drought conditions to start off their planting season, which could be indicative of what's coming later in the season for them. So certainly a conversation we continue to have is what's going on in South America, although I really feel like it's been clouded by what's been going on in the Russia-Ukraine area, Tanner. Yeah, I would say that is stealing some of the news thunder. Uh, but yeah, again, uh, great comment on not going to get through an August episode without having conversations about weather, whether it's heat wave, potential tropical storm uh, coming into the Gulf of Mexico, or wider range forecast like you discussed. The last piece I have for today is just a little congratulations to fellow Ag News reporters. This week, Ag Day TV launched their 40th season. So congratulations on 40 years of serving the nation's farmers and agriculture industry with nationally syndicated daily newscasts. So listeners, if you're looking for or haven't checked out Ag Day TV, it's certainly one to take a look at since it's got 40 years of history, they do a lot of things correctly. So now this news program is on each morning to 121 affiliate stations and RFD TV, reaching more than 53 million viewers each year. So congratulations to Ag Day uh, for 40 years of continued progress. They started Delaney in 1982 by satellite which was a brand new technology at that time and only a handful of local stations. So congratulations to them for building up a very great network, especially those that benefits the ag industry. Yeah, I saw on TikTok, they shared some bloopers from the past couple of years, at least when Clinton and Tyne have been the hosts. But big congratulations. 40 years is a long time to keep doing this. Tanner, I don't know if we'll be podcasting for the next 40 years. <laughs> Who knows? It seems like one of those things, once you start, it's really hard to stop. So, yeah, that's true. Uh, maybe maybe the listeners will hang with us for that long. Well, hopefully they've been hanging with the markets this week because we do finally have a little bit of recovery this morning as we're seeing some green in corn and soybeans. Not very much green in the corn market, but light trading is starting to pick things back up here. Trading about one and a half to two cents higher in new crop corn, right around that six eleven mark. New crop soybeans up about ten and a half, eleven cents as of the opening markets this morning, trading right around thirteen ninety-one. Wheat has not recovered from early week losses with the September contract still down on the day, fifteen and a half cents, trading right around that seven seventy mark. And in livestock this morning, we're seeing some negative trade in live and feeder cattle October live cattle down about 30 cents at a buck 45 September feeders down 45 cents on the morning at 185 and lean hogs are having a little bit of positivity this morning up 42 and a half cents in the October contract right at 97 dollars Tanner yeah a lot of the articles that I read first thing this morning are uh 
saying they didn't want to call it a dead cat bounce yet, but certainly <laughs> gave indications of that being the case. That's a, yes, good way to put it. Thank you. I'd forgotten that terminology. Absolutely. Well, who do we have for a conversation today, Delaney? Tanner, I'm very excited. We're talking with Certified Angus Beef's Nicole Ersig today about some interesting things they're doing to target consumers and encourage them to continue choosing beef at the grocery store. So let's turn it over to that conversation. Well, listeners, I am very happy to introduce you all today to Nicole Ersig, Director of Communications at Certified Angus Beef. We have a lot to cover today, Nicole. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me, Cassidy. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. To start us off, can you just give us a little bit of your background and the background of Certified Angus Beef and how you got involved? Yeah, absolutely. So Certified Angus Beef is a is the world's leading beef brand. We've been around for over 40 years. Uh, we are owned by the members of the American Angus Association. And our mission really is to increase demand for registered Angus cattle and increase profit a path to profitability for producers. But we do that by focusing on people at the opposite end of the supply chain, really focus on marketing our brand to consumers uh, through partners around the world. Today, we we market over 1.2 billion pounds of beef a year in more than 50 countries and work to engage our partners and uh, consumers with the tools to be able to sell and have success with, with beef. My background, uh, I am originally from Oregon. I grew up in a very small rural community in Eastern Oregon. I went to college at K-State and that's where I fell in love with the beef industry. And that is actually where I got introduced to Certified Angus Beef. I had the pleasure of interning for the brand when I was in college. And I would say in the, the Ursig household, we, we love red meat. I'm in the beef industry. My husband is in the pork industry. And when we got married, followed his career to uh, North Carolina and spent a couple of years there. I worked for a livestock marketing agency, Ranch House Designs. And it just kind of happened perfectly that when he was wrapping up his graduate work, Certified Angus Beef was looking for a communications professional. And so we moved to Ohio. That was more than five years ago and haven't looked back, but glad to be here today, getting to be someone who my job is really telling the stories of Certified Angus Beef and communicating all the way from, from consumers to producers and really connecting the dots, connecting people and, and translating different things across the supply chain. I'm excited to learn more about some of those stories that you put together, Nicole, because we really wanted to focus today's conversation with you on some of the things that Certified Angus Beef is doing to connect with consumers because you guys are doing some unique projects and stories. Tell us a little bit more about how you go, go about putting that strategy together. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, we can see that today consumer expectations they're really always, always evolving. But today we have a, a different consumer ahead of us and we are very focused on how do we engage those folks while maintaining the customer base that we have and bringing new people into the fold. So we do it in a variety of ways. Uh, we're very active on, on social media, of course. Um, we have an entire chef team that's focused on how do we provide recipes and tips and tools that make buying and using beef in your home easy. 
But then again, we know that today's consumer is really looking to connect with a brand that they feel good about. Uh, Some recent research we did came back with 83% of consumers need to feel good about the meat brand that they are purchasing. And so how can we tell stories that that showcase the good work that producers are doing and create a positive narrative around how that beef is raised. One project that I know you guys have have reported on recently is work with Ducks Unlimited. And we are, are working on a project with them in the Northern Great Plains that really allows us to amplify the role uh, and tell the story of how beef, really cattle, are critical to in a very important ecosystem. Uh, There's lots of benefits beyond a great steak that go into producing beef, and it's allowing us to to tell the story of how cattle are really good for the environment and a critical piece of the environment. So working on some things like that that help us elevate the good work that's happening in the industry. We know that consumers trust uh, producers as a, a source of information. Today, they just want to verify that information. So it's how can we hold up producers who are doing a great job, um, but create a path towards verification, whether that's data, um, content, any of those things that allow producers to have trust in our brand. And as we look to the future, that's that's really our focus is how can we be America's most trusted, really the world's most trusted mm-hmm. brand. And I think that's a little bit of a enlightening way to phrase it because it feels like a lot of times we think, oh, consumers don't trust us in agriculture, but you guys are kind of putting a positive spin on that and saying, we know that consumers trust us. They just want to validate and verify that information. Yes, absolutely. I think all of us have had the experience of of trust maybe eroding in some of our institutions, um, but farmers and ranchers, as we do consumer research, really are something that that producers look to and say like, hey, I I feel like I can trust that person raising my food, but I don't understand it. So how can can we make uh, things easier for consumers to digest in a way that feels like that is verified, that, hey, what what they're saying is true. And, And we're trying to do that through a variety of ways, whether it's data and stories from programs like we're doing with Ducks Unlimited. Uh, One thing you will see coming from us this fall is talking a lot more about BQA certification. We know that that helps increase trust in in consumers, especially as we're talking about sustainability. Um, And I know that topic can feel so nuanced, but when when we survey consumers, they say what comes to mind initially when we say sustainability is animal welfare. And we know that cattle producers are are doing an incredible job taking care of their animals. It's just how do we communicate that in a way that's quick and easy? And BQA certification is a great way for us to do that. Um, So you will see Certified Angus Beef talking about more about getting BQA certified because that data and those stories help us uh, create that connection to consumers and to end user partners, whether in food service or retail, of just, hey, producers are doing a good job. Here's a proof point that we can verify that with. In addition to those kind of PR and consumer relations that y'all do to gain the trust of the people buying your brand, what do y'all do with your producers? What requirements do they have to meet to meet the certified Angus standard? What do they have to do to qualify to put that stamp on their meat? 
Great question, Cassidy. So our certification process uh, happens at the packing plant. So for producers who are targeting the certified Angus beef brand and want to be able to access the more than $180 million in grid premiums that are, are given to producers who meet our brand standards, it really comes back to management. And it's using high quality Angus genetics that you know are going to marble um, and perform in the feed yard and on, on the rail. We do have a program for marketers and then for um, for seed stock producers to use to help commercial producers identify those genetics that have a higher propensity to hit certified Angus beef brand standards. Um, and that's our targeting the brand program. So anyone who is, is bull shopping this fall, look out for that targeting the brand logo. We do provide information directly to producers on, on different ways to manage manage cattle, um, especially because we know that marbling is the number one reason that cattle don't qualify for the certified Angus beef brand. So how can you have a balanced animal that you know is going to perform on the rail? And so anyone who is interested in that, I would highly recommend checking out cabcattle.com or our Cattleman Connection uh, social media channels, which is just the certified Angus beef brand Cattleman Connection. And Nicole, I saw on your website where on cibcattle.com that you're talking about, there is an option for seed stock and commercial cattle for supplying to the brand. And under feed yard, it says coming soon. What is that program going to look like and when will it be available? Oh, great question, Cassidy. That is uh, more just a section of our website that's coming soon that's more for feeders. Today, we engage feeders at a variety of levels, um, working from an information standpoint. Uh, lots of our feeders engage with uh, Bruce Cobb, who's our vice president of production, or Paul Dykstra when it comes to cattle marketing opportunities or, or things like that. So um, know that those people are, are always available as a resource and that if you come to our website and feel like there's no, nothing for you, I promise it's there. We are just working on some, some website edits right now. Well, that's certainly exciting, Nicole. And one more time before we let you go, what is that website? Yes, if you are a beef producer that wants more information on how to target the brand, visit cabcattle.com. If you're looking for recipes on what to cook for dinner or want to connect with our chefs, visit certifiedangusbeef.com. Fantastic. Well, Nicole, thank you once again for joining us today. Certainly appreciate your time. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. It's always great to talk about what the brand is doing and, and how we can help beef producers. So I appreciate the opportunity. That's great, Delaney. And we have fantastic timing on this podcast. As yesterday, we reported on the meat vending machines that some of these smaller uh, butcher shops are using to reach their customers. So it's always great to keep our finger on the pulse and let our listeners know what's happening in the ag industry. Absolutely, Tanner. We'll be back tomorrow with another great conversation. So folks, do stay tuned. With that, Tanner, should we let people go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.